Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. You're altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful. Isn't that great? Isn't that the life that you want to invite others to? A life of worship, a life of wonder, a life of of value, knowing God and being known by Him. Isn't that the greatest thing? Intimacy requires that we know ourselves. You cannot share yourself if you don't know yourself. If there are closets in your soul that you have been afraid to open up or beds you've been afraid to look under, um, there are parts of you that God has yet to invade. Although God has access to the far reaches of the universe and beyond, He pauses at the threshold of a human heart. Isn't that amazing? The Bible says Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come in with him and sup with him. I will commune with him. I will have lunch or tea or dinner or midnight snack. Um, He will invade, he will come in to whatever part of your soul you invite him. And the great thing is that as you let him invade your soul and open up the doors and the windows and the closets and clean out the attic, um, there is more and more space for God to be at work in you. God is big and He's powerful, but He's often limited in our lives and the lives of those we come in contact with because we let our lives be so full of other things that we don't leave much room for Him. We're so afraid to give it all over that He's very restricted. I remember the, uh, the old movie Aladdin. Does it, do anybody remember the Disney movie Aladdin where um, Robin Williams was the genie? Um, I love that because I like that kind of show. But um, there's this one part where Aladdin is like talking to the genies like, wow, it must be cool to be so awesome, to have this awesome cosmic power and be able to do anything you want. And uh, Robin Williams as a genie says, yeah, it's it's great. I have this awesome cosmic power, but itty-bitty living space. (laughs) Because the genie has to live in a bottle, right? And so God finds himself in the position with us that the genie found himself. He's got this awesome cosmic power, but such an itty-bitty living space because we have not been fully given over to him. We're afraid to enlarge our hearts so that he can have room to do his work in us. And this, if there's nothing else through this training, I hope that God will use it to enlarge your heart, to enlarge your sense of his love and affection for you, to enlarge your sense of your love for him and of your love for those that he cared enough for that he sent Jesus, that his heart would become your heart and that the space that he has in there would expand to the place that there's room to dance. There's room for him to move you as he will. The Bible says that those who are born of the Spirit are like the wind. You, don't, you hear the sound of it, but you know where it's coming from or where it's going. And in counseling, a lot of times you feel that way. I don't know where this is coming from. I don't know where it's going. But I know that I need the Spirit to blow me. I need the Spirit to blow through this wreckage of of a life and bring hope and healing and restoration. Okay, y'all are awesome. Thanks for being so timely. I know this is a long, um, hard day. We'll try not to drive you so hard the next days. But but the goal of today is to, to give you guys a, a paradigm, a little, like, um, structure 
that you can hang the knowledge that we give you on over the course of the next several Saturdays that we meet. Um, so I want to go back to um, a developmental model. The Bible says that we must be born again. If you are going to inherit the kingdom, if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, you've got to become like a little child. Well, that's kind of an interesting thing for Jesus to say. You must be born again. You must become like a little child. Well, my view is that all of our human relationships prepare us for God. That all of our human relationships, to the extent that they are satisfying and healthy, encourage in us a desire for more. If you experienced a loving mother or a tender father, if you had a good experience with an aunt or an uncle or a first grade teacher, that positive experience of love and support, of caring and connection, causes you to want more of the same, right? You want more because you've, you've been given a taste of something good, and so you want to keep eating on it. Um, but ironically, in our human relationships, while their successes prepare us to engage God, it's in their failures that we are most likely to call out for God. We are going to be looking at the Beatitudes, and the very first Beatitude says this. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The way I think about that is that our human spirit is the part of us that is most like God, is the eternal part of us. But if we are full of our humanity, if we have grown up in a a setting where we had um, great nurturing mom, we had a a disciplined and loving father, we had um, enough to eat, we had clothes to wear, we didn't have to feel outcast. Ironically, the more together we are as a human, the more full we are of our human spirit, the less likely we are to feel a desire for something beyond what this world has to give. Let me tell you, there are plenty of people out there, and the Woodlands has its share, people who are together enough. They've got the right cars, the right house, their kids are in the right right football team or the right band or, or learning the right things, so that they feel pretty satisfied with what they've got here on the earth. But Jesus would say, Don't envy them. They have the reward. They've got it here. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who are broken, who are beat down, who are beat up, who are inadequate and inept because they are the ones that are going to reach out for me. And you know what? God is not proud and he will take any of us. Isn't that great? He's like, these are my kids. The broken, the battered, the bruised, the bereft. We are the ones that God claims as his own. And so the great news is that the people who come to you um, are going to be struggling because of their brokenness. They're going to be feeling beat down. They're going to be feeling that they don't have any place in the world. And the good news is your place is ultimately not in this world. If you feel like you're a homeless child, it's because your heart belongs to heaven. And you will never, this side of heaven feel completely satisfied. That's great news, right? It is good news if you understand that in the recognition of your your inadequacy, that 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 very inadequacy connects you to an adequate and loving father, it's the best thing. If your pain keeps you close to the healer, isn't that a good thing? If the thorn in the flesh that you struggle with reminds you daily that you are desperate for God, how great is that? So our job is not to make everybody that comes to us adequate and 
successful and confident and competent. No, we don't have to do any of that. We have to invite them into a way of being that recognizes that even in my inadequacy, in my incompetence, in my failure, in my pain and suffering, I belong to God. So being born again really is an invitation to take a look at our souls and how they develop and to renegotiate the tasks of development in relationship with our loving Father. So what I'm, what I'm going to propose to you is that counseling um, is, is one of the means that God's, God uses to further people on their developmental journey, journey. That God's big priority for you is for you to grow up. Right? He wants you to be a fit bride for his son. He wants to be, you, to be presented without spot or blemish. That you grow up in all ways into the measure of the stature of Christ that you can connect with him in eternity like a bride to a bridegroom. What an awesome possibility is that? But the cool thing is that the way that we grow up, Paul says in Ephesians, is by relating to each other, by speaking the truth in love, by being connected. That relationship is how we grow. Magnavox. Um, it's a word from the Lord. Um, the, um, the truth is that God wants you to grow up as you relate to him and as you relate to others. And counseling is one way that we can, we can further that process. Okay, so we're going to briefly go through a four-stage model of development. And we're going to look at human development, the, the progression of a child from infancy to adulthood. And then we're going, and we're, as we go along, we're going to talk about how that shows up in the counseling office and how it connects with that paradigm that we went over early that talked about connection, confession, course correction, and conviction. Okay? So I think you're going to, if you'll kind of have your eyes and ears open, you'll begin to see how this model uh, fits together. Okay, what is the first thing that a kid, that a baby does when he or she comes to life? When When the baby emerges from the birth canal, what's the first act that the child does to signal, hey, I'm here? Cry. Wah! There's a a loud wail, a cry. And over the first few months of life, the cry is very consistent, almost constant in those first few weeks. What is the baby signaling when he or she cries? Need. Um, Whether it's a need for attention or affection, for nursing or nurturing, um, whether the child has a dirty diaper or is frightened or hurting, the cry is a signal of need. It's, the, it's the, the child's ability to reach out to get those needs met. And so every time the child cries and the mother responds, something is happening. There's a connection. There's a bond. And we talk about this phase. On your paper, it says embracing, um, which is uh, sort of a symbol of our embracing our own need and embracing others and their need. But bonding is what, the word that we usually think of when we think of this first stage of development. Bonding is what happens over and over again in those first few months of life when the baby cries and mom or a nurturing other comes and reaches out to that child in need. So day by day, the bond is established as the baby expresses need. When people come to you uh, for help, the cry is symbolic of their cry for help. It's their attempt to get attention for something that they feel is a need. And they may have a need for direction or for 
healing or for comfort or for help. But need is what drives us into relationship. People come to see, see me as a counselor because they have a need and they feel like they need someone else to um, engage with them in the need. The attachment is what we're talking about here. And um, the, the beatitude that goes along with that, you'll notice on your, on your sheet there, that's titled Relational Development the Beatitudes. The beatitude that goes along with this first stage is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you don't feel a need for God, you are not going to reach out to him. If you don't feel a need for counseling, you are not going to make the appointment. If you don't feel a need for a, a partner, you're not going to get married. If you don't feel a need for um, more training, you're not going to be here today. Need drives relationship. And, and Jesus says in this first beatitude, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for they will connect with something beyond themselves. In the grand scheme of things, his desire is that we connect with the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is all about life and peace and joy. So the kingdom of heaven is the promise. And so bonding is that, that first stage of development. If the mother is there consistently over time and she reaches out to the child in the need, the child learns that the, that the world is a safe place. Um, psychologically, we call this a secure base. And the child uses that sense of security that the world makes sense that it's a safe place as a launching pad for everything that follows. If there is a problem in bonding, there is a real problem in life. Because in bonding is when I have that basic sense of core competence or confidence that if I reach out, if I exert myself, if I call out, if I cry out, something good will happen. The Bible says um, those who come to God must believe that he is and that he is rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Right? So this, this sense of security that if I reach out to God, he will be there for me is foundational for our life of faith with God. And it, and it derives from our um, early experience with, uh, with a mom. Obviously, this is the most profound need of a human being. The Bible talks about the, uh, that God is a father to the fatherless. But did you ever notice that it doesn't say that he's a mother to the motherless? Isn't that curious? Because when I, when I first realized that, I thought, well, how that seems all wrong because to not have a mother is a more profound deprivation even than not having a father, isn't it? And because if you don't have a mother, if you don't have a, a, a constant caring pr- uh, provider for your needs, you are likely going to either die or develop something called failure to thrive. You are not going to grow up to be a healthy person without a mother. It turns out that if you have a, a bonding deficit, if you did not experience caring and nurturing from a mother or someone who stood in the, in the role of a mother for you, then you will not grow into a healthy relationship with others and relationship with God until you encounter someone who embodies the grace of God like a mother does. And one of the, one of the things about connection and counseling is that for some people that come to you, you are that mom. You may be the first person who is there for them in a way that provides them with a sense of nurturing and comfort and security and faithfulness. In the body of Christ, one of the most profound needs that we have is to be Jesus with skin on. To, to be that person who embodies the mercy, the tenderness, the compassion, and the grace of God. So it's one of the, one of the great things. If bonding does not happen well, if the, if the child does not experience 
a mom who is consistent. If the child cries and no one comes, then the, the possibility is that the child will withdraw. Because if a child cries and no one comes, a healthy child will cry louder, cry longer. But what happens if a child cries and cries and nobody comes? And cries and cries and nobody comes? It starts, that cry starts to get weaker, it starts to attenuate, and eventually it stops. The child withdraws from relationship. The child stops reaching out. The child even withdraws from its own sense of need. Um, when we lived in Denver, uh, my dad was uh, working for the state, and he was called to um, do a, a pay a visit to a family. And uh, it turns out that the, these three children had been abandoned by their mother, and the father was completely overwhelmed with trying to take care of them and work. And he uh, made the decision to let the state take these children because he knew he was totally inadequate. Turns out the, little, the youngest of them was a little baby who was in a crib. And when my dad got there um, and took the kids, uh, it, was, it became obvious immediately that the diaper on this little baby had been there so long that it had to be soaked off. And some of the skin came with it. Because the child had been so neglected that she didn't even express her dis- discomfort because there was no point. There was no sense that, there would, make, that would make any difference. And so she, she detached from her own sense of discomfort, from her own hunger pangs or pangs of discomfort. The good news is that that, um, that little girl is my cousin Cindy, who is now a beautiful woman because my aunt and uncle adopted her. But, um, but it was a profound trauma and really affected her bonding. Um, when I was a, a little kid, my mom had spinal meningitis, and so there was an interruption in bonding, which I believe led to my knee-jerk tendency to withdraw when I didn't feel safe in relationship. It's something that really took a lot of um, work to overcome, and we'll talk more about that. But when, when you heard Carrie talk about early childhood memories, sometimes the bonding uh, problems are before there's even memory. Um, if there's an adoption if there was neglect, if there was abuse uh, in infancy. A lot of people won't have these memories, but what they'll know is they feel disconnected. They feel alienated. They don't feel like they fit, and they, they, they tend to withdraw from relationship, especially when they need it the most, and they isolate. Well, if all things go well, and there is a secure base, and in counseling, if you make a good connection, we said that the next phase is, is confession. We, here we call it releasing, or we could call it separation. As important as it is to connect emotionally, it's also important to separate. If you think about um, the, the bonding stage, in the bonding stage, there's an open channel of emotion between the mother and the child. So that when the child is upset, um, if the child is frightened or sad or whatever, the mother will mirror the child's emotional stage. She'll go, oh, poor baby, and she'll show on her own face the a- affect or the emotion of the child. Um, so there's this open connection. If the child is happy, the mother will show the, her own delight in her own face. And in the, in the opening phases of counseling, when you're connecting, it's very important to do something called mirroring, where you mirror through your words and your expression, even your posture, the posture, expression, and feeling of the person you're working with. Um, so that if, if the person you're, you're working with is um, sitting on the edge of their seat kind of you know like this, it's not a bad idea to take a, a similar posture to them in that opening session. If they're all laid back and loose, then, you know, you can do the same thing. But the idea is that 
that through your posture, your tone of voice, your eye contact, and, and your um, empathy, that you forge that opening, that connection, that bond between them. However, as important as that is, when it comes to releasing our separation, it is important to have an emotional gate. How does that show up in, um, in a relationship between a mother and a child? Well, when a child is, is, has a good bond, when they feel secure, they automatically begin to branch out. They begin to test the limits. They begin to do new things, try new things. Kids are notorious for putting things in their mouths. And so a kid will start crawling around and find a dead roach or um, some Ajax under the counter or whatever. The kid will put things in their mouth that probably not good to put there. kid will stick things in the, in the uh, sockets or climb up on things. Um, my sister um, went into her son's room on a couple of occasions, and he was smearing poop on the walls of his room. Okay? Now, what happens at this point is very interesting. In bonding, the child feels like mom always gets me. Mom is always there for me. If I need it, if I want it, mom is going to provide it. If I'm upset, mom's going to be upset with me. If, mom, if I'm happy, mom's going to be happy with me. Suddenly, what happens is the kid's having a great time smearing poop on the walls or throwing food on the floor or hitting the kid brother or whatever. And mom comes in the room, and instead of like joining in the fun and finger painting on the walls, uh, mom suddenly takes a very different emotional response to this situation. Instead of being like, oh, how wonderful, she's like, no! You know, and she snatches the kid off the counter or takes the Ajax from the kid or tries to get the dead roach out of the kid's mouth or, you know, whatever it is. She is not happy with what the kid is doing. And suddenly, it seems all wrong for the child because this big person who I thought was always going to be for me is suddenly against me. And so the child uh, begins to feel a lot of negative feelings. In fact, um, in our, they enter a stage that we often call the terrible twos because the child is dealing with the trauma of having to have boundaries, having to deal with the fact that me and mom are not the same, that we are at odds, that what I want and what she wants is not the same. The kid's like, I want a cookie. No, you can't have a cookie. But I want one. Can't have a cookie. And the kid, even over something as small as a cookie, may go ballistic, may throw a terrible tantrum. What happens if the mother has no emotional gait is that she is threatened by the child's dis, uh, discomfort, the child's distress, the tamp- temper tantrum. What do you think would happen? The child is saying, I hate you, you're mean mommy. And the, and the mom says, well, I hate you too, you're a miserable wretch of a child. <laughs> would that be good? Probably not. Because in order to deal with the loss of that perfect sense of attunement and attachment, the child has to be able to feel their feelings while mom remains calm. How does that relate to counseling? Um, when, the ch- when the person you're meeting with begins to, to pour out their grief, they need to know that you are going to be able to stay calm in the face of their grief because they're going to tell you some things that are really horrible. They're going to tell you some things that have been done to them that are unthinkable, some things that they themselves have done that are unimaginably horrible. And if you cannot maintain peace and a positive emotional state in the face of that tragedy and pain and trauma, they will not be able to go through it and come back to a place of peace. Early on in, in, the, in the relationship between a mother and a child, when the child starts getting angry or anxious or upset, 
the mother intervenes very quickly and brings the child back to a place of peace. Um, if the child wakes up at night and starts wailing, the mother comes in and comforts the child or nurses the child, whatever, and the child gets to sleep. Now, over time, that gap, the interval, the, lo- the length of time she waits may get longer. And typically it does because she's exhausted. She can't drag herself out of bed quite as quickly. And she's tired of not getting any sleep. And, you know, reality intervenes so that she has to wait a little bit longer. They put the, she puts the kid in the other room instead of keeping the, room, the kid in the room with her. The, lo- the upshot is that the, the child learns to go longer and longer before getting attention until one day the mother realizes that she needs to just let the child cry him or, se- him or herself to sleep. We learned that the hard way with our first child. Adam was a colicky baby. Um, for the first year, he did not sleep through the night. The bad thing was that our second child was due at 50, when, when our first was 15 months old. So at a year, we're, we're three months from the next one's birth, and we're thinking, we're going to die, right? <laughs> because we had not slept a night through for a year, and we had another one on the way. So finally, we learned that we, what we needed to do was to go in when Adam would wake up, colicky, just pat him. That was back when you could put your kid on their stomach. I don't know if you can still do that now. But anyway, pat him and reassure him verbally that we were there and then leave the room and wait. And the first, the first night that we, we did it, we waited five minutes. The next night it was like seven. Then it was 10. Then it was 15. Eventually, he was able to get himself back to sleep without us entering the room. What a night that was. That was great. Um, but but what, what children have to learn is that the soothing that they experience from mom and bonding is something that they have to learn to do for themselves. Psychologically, we call it self-soothing. And what you'll find is that self-soothing really depends on a caring presence that is there in the background, but which, which does not do the work for the individual. Um, what's the word you hear a lot from, uh, from two-year-olds? No. And mine. Thank you. Both of those words are very common. And they both have to do with boundaries. They both have to do with limitations. And whenever a child comes up against the limitations in their world, they don't like it. They don't want to hear no. They learn to say no because they hear no. And a healthy child will begin to take responsibility for, for boundaries. So that the child will say no even to things that they might otherwise enjoy, like ice cream or whatever, because they need to feel a sense of control. Um, because it, you can imagine this two-year-old is a pretty small person, but is having to go toe-to-toe with this very big person who actually holds all the uh, first strings, whatever. It holds all the, the power. But a healthy child will say no even to this big mom who could you know, lose it and bust their bottom, whatever. Um, but along with no, the two-year-old learns to say mine. The two-year-old re- realizes that some, not everything is under my control, but some things are, whether it's my blankie or my, little, my special toy. There are some things that no one can take from me. Well, what, the way that relates to counseling is that that what we want to do after we connect with people is to release them to a knowledge that their emotional life is something that is theirs, that they can say mine. They can set limits to the pain that other people inflict on them. They can't change that memory from the past, but they can choose to reorient to it so that it no longer 
invades them with a sense of inadequacy or grief. Um, Ultimately, what God wants for us to know is that our heart is ours and that, that at the end of the day, I can bring myself back to a place of calm by reminding myself that God is for me, by reminding myself that all will be well, that it's going to be good at the end of the day. And if you want the people to learn how to do that for themselves, you've got to resist the urge to do it for them. If a mother intervenes when her child is tantruming and tries to calm the child down, what happens? Somebody gets hurt, usually. I mean, really. A kid who's tantruming is not safe. And furthermore, they need to get it out. If they're not hurting themselves or hurting someone else, if they're not breaking anything or you know, banging their head you know, too hard on the floor, um, mother, the, the best thing the mother can do is let it run its course. Because when a child is in, in a place of emotional upset, there is no reasoning with the child. And if you want to get to course correction, if you want to be able to help a person understand a new way of living, to appreciate a new perspective, then you've got to get them out of their pain. And the way you do that is by being with them and inviting them to express it, to get it out, to go there. Isn't that cool? It's the greatest thing. Um, Sometimes uh, someone will meet with me and their deepest need is just to get their pain out. And they'll spend the whole session just gushing, like, you know, pouring out all this pain that has been pent up in them. And they'll cry and they may apologize and say, I'm sorry. And I'm like, no, 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 no worries. My job is to make you cry and then help you stop, right? (laughs) It's great, you know. Um, in fact, I tell people, it's an, I feel honored when you open up your box of pain and share it. But what, what's, what's cool is that when they get back to that place of calm, by the end of the session, I may have said virtually nothing. Like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Wow, tell me more. They end the session, they're like, I feel so much better. I'm like, really? I didn't do anything. They're like, oh, thank you so much. That helped. Wow. Is that cool? Because you, you allow them, by your warm, caring presence, without intervening, you give them the message that you are going to be okay, that you're strong enough to deal with that, that. A baby legitimately needs mom to intervene. A baby cannot get a bottle. A baby cannot crawl to you know, cross the room. A baby is completely helpless. And we need to know when the person we're meeting with needs us to step in. But beyond that first connection, most of the time we need to give the person the, the assurance by our stillness that we are confident that they have everything they need to survive. Isn't that cool? That you're, you're being still and attentive and calm gives them the message that you are going to be okay. You're going to be okay. This is, yeah, thank you. Talk more. Wow. Oh, my goodness. That sounds horrible. Just get, inviting them to go deeper into their pain and just being like, wow, you know, it seems like a miracle that you're even here today. I'm surprised you're not doing worse. You know, that's really awful. You know, like, so that, so that you, 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 you don't try to fix it, you don't try to make it better. In fact, you may have to help them see how really horrible it is because some people that come to you have been telling themselves for their whole lives, it's not that bad. They did the best they could. I didn't deserve anything better. And you're going to invite them to go, oh, no, this is horrible. No, no six-year-old should have gone through what you went through. A, a woman just told me this week that at seven years old, 
her, um, her mother abandoned her and her two children. She was having an affair, and the dad was out of the picture. Abandoned her for two weeks, and she had to f- take care of her. She had a four-year-old and like a 10-month-old sibling. She's in this house trying to figure out how to feed them, and you know she just had to let the, the infant poo on the fl- floor and clean it up because she didn't have any diapers. Can you imagine a seven-year-old dealing with that? So I have to like, help that person see how really horrible that is. Um, and, and, and to see how horrible it is makes it hurt even more. Okay, is that our job? Yes, sometimes that's our job, to help people hurt more so that they can give themselves the compassion they need to take the next step and to put that in the past where it belongs. Okay, so um, saying no and mine, um, self-soothing, what, uh, the, the beatitude that, that this anchors into is blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourning is not something we tend to want to do. We don't like dealing with grief. But in a fallen world, there are necessary losses. In a fallen world, there are bad things that happen to every one of us. And Jesus is saying, you will be blessed if you learn how to deal with that pain and release it because on the other side, there's comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The Hebrew word, uh, the Greek word for comfort means to call near. And so um, when, when a child is done with his tantrum, then the mother can call the child near and say, Sweetie, do you know my mo- why mommy wouldn't give you the cookie? Yes. Or no. But, but at that point, when the tantrum is over, the mother can say, You know, if you eat a cookie before supper, you're not going to eat your supper, and you need to eat your supper to be healthy. Okay. And maybe you can have a cookie after supper. Okay. Isn't that great? You know, but to have that openness to a new way of thinking about things requires getting beyond the trauma and the pain to a place of calm. Okay. So um, if releasing happens, what happens is the child goes through all the stages of grief denial, bargaining, anger, sadness. Um, Eventually, what you hope for your child is that they come to a place of acceptance where even though they don't like the limits, they've beat their head against the wall enough times that they come to accept that those limits are not going to change. If if the mother does not provide firm and smooth limits, if she doesn't maintain the boundaries in a loving way, what happens is the child may revert back to bonding. Um, What happens with a lot of moms is they like that emotional connection with their babies. And some moms just love the infancy stage. They just love that uh, open channel of affection. And so they resist separating from their children. And so they they, uh, unconsciously give their children a lot of messages that it's not safe to separate. And that if the child gets hurt because it's acting independently of mom, the mom is tempted to punish the child or give the child the message, well, that's what you get for trying to do that on your own. You should always come to mommy. Because some mommies like to be needed. Some mommies are threatened when their child says, you're mean, I don't like you. And so they do everything they need to to gratify the child and get the child to think that they're good. And if we need to be always seen in a positive light by others, we are going to subvert this progression of growth. And if, you, if your job is to, um, is to be seen in a positive light by the people you meet with, you are going to unconsciously fail 
to separate from them at certain moments, to um, intervene at certain moments, because you don't want them to think that you're uncaring or unfeeling or you don't understand where they're coming from. Because sometimes people need the rude awakening that, that you don't see it the way they see it, that there's some other way of viewing it. Um, if, if releasing doesn't occur, if the mother is too anxious to allow the child to, to release, then they, they foster a um, tendency to cling on the part of their child. And children who have, have trouble with um, separation anxiety often have mothers who have separation anxiety. Mothers who don't like to let their child out of their sight because they don't trust God enough to keep that child safe if they're not there to do it. And it's a very, it's a very big deprivation for a child not to have that separation from mom. To believe that the world is safe enough that I don't have to always have mom in my eyesight to feel calm. Um, one of the things that happens in, in counseling is sometimes people will bring up a point of confusion or hurt or pain right at the end of your time with them. Like it comes out right at the end of the time. And you're like, they're, they're like going, help me. You know, and you're realizing it's time to stop. And you're like, uh, we're at the end of our time. I'm so sorry, but this is obviously something that's important. Um, it, why don't you bring it up at the beginning of, the, of our next session? And they're like, but, but, but I, 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 what do I do? And again, they're trying to hook you in to being their secure base and being the one that will give them comfort or help or soothing. Um, so that if you end the session and, and you say, hey, listen, I'd love to go into this, but we're going to have to w- save that for next session. What you're saying underneath that is, you're going to be okay. God will be there for you. And we can pick this up when you come back. Now, they, they may have a view of themselves that's like very fragile. Like, oh, no, 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 no. I can't stop like this. You go, I think it'll be okay. Let's just close with a prayer. And you invite God to enter into their distress. Okay, what I want to do is... Um, Close with a little prayer. Close this session with a little prayer. And um, whatever distress you're in right now. Um, think, about, think about your own life in, in these two phases. Are you really good at bonding or are you really good at separating? People who are good at bonding uh, tend to like, always be good at making connections with other people. And they'll go into a room and immediately they'll find a way to connect with people. Oh, I love that movie. Oh, I used to live there. Oh, I have a cousin who went to that college, whatever. Um, they're good at connecting. People who, who are here and releasing often are good at um, like distinguishing themselves from others. Oh, you like that restaurant? Oh, their service sucks. You know, they're, they're you know, very, they like that sense of separateness. But think about your own history. And, and on the basis of the, the talk that we heard from Carrie earlier, you might think of some of your earliest recollections. For many people, they relate to these two developmental tasks, bonding and releasing. And um, just share with the, the people in your group uh, around your table some of what this, uh, this paradigm stirs up for you personally and where you see yourself as be- needing to grow in connecting or confessing in, in bonding or releasing in your relationships with the ones you love and those you work with. Let's pray, and then we'll have a few minutes to, to share around the table. During the table time, if you want to go to the bathroom or get something to drink, feel free to do that, and then we'll start back um, right about 3 o'clock. Oh, two o'clock, yes. <laughs> Man, I would, I would be in trouble if it was really three o'clock. Oh. Yeah, there's a lot more we want to do. So let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for um, inviting us to be born again, to become like little children, to engage with you, to bond with you, and to release to you our pain, our suffering. God, we thank you for David, who was faithful to bring all of his feelings into, into his relationship with you, even those feelings of frustration and confusion, feelings of fear and anger. And Lord, we just pray that as we work with people, that we will invite them to bring all those feelings into the room, that we can see you show up and provide peace. Lord, help us in our table time to make good use of this information. In Jesus' name, amen.